Welcome to the Urban Robot Cat Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Leggins. I'm Chris RWK. And I'm Corey from Strange Cat Toys. And we are here for episode four of the podcast about art and the people who make it. And today we're going to talk a little bit about production of toys. But we're going to start out with saying, how's your week going, Chris? Um, this week, let's see. It's pretty good. Kind of been in a little bit of an art rut. So I've been working on stuff like stickers and stuff that's kind of like my, my fun place, my, my happy place, you know. So uh, just, I don't know, taking this little step back from, from painting. I don't know why, but I just need a break. Other than that, it's good. Uh, it's going good. How about you? Uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting week. I'm kind of doing some prep for upcoming uh, designer con. Uh, I'm trying to tie up some loose ends and get things uh, all kind of boxed up and ready to go to be shipped and everything. And then, um, you know, kind of tying up some loose ends on some projects that are, you know, kind of coming in from uh, getting shipped in and tracking them, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we've started some new projects. We revealed a project this week that we're doing with uh, MCA and um, just kind of seeing the feedback coming in and, you know, kind of seeing how uh, things are going to go. But uh, what about you, Corey? What have you been up to? Sunday, took the family to Hollywood Studios in Orlando. So that was uh, Matilda's first time to see, like, Minnie Mouse and stuff up close. So that was pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's way cooler than what we're doing. How would you like Galaxy's Edge? I went in the single riders line, obviously, because we can't take Matilda on there. Yvette right. just doesn't really uh, ride rides. And I'm glad I did not wait, like, the three hours everybody else waited. It was cool, but it wasn't anything amazing. Yeah, I feel like it's... I mean, I haven't obviously been there, but I feel like it's more the world itself, kind of seeing those things come to life than the rides, I guess. Kind of being immersed in the world. If you can, like, suspend reality when you're there a little bit, feel like you're in the Star Wars world a little bit. Yeah, and they, they did a really good job. It didn't have that kind of magic feel like the Harry Potter area and Universal and Islands. They just did a way better job. You think I, so? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the budget was pretty high, and, like, like I said, I didn't do a bad job. I looked good, but I didn't feel like I was anywhere in Star Wars that I really recognized. Whereas when I go into like the Diagon Alley and stuff like that for the Harry Potter stuff, like it, you feel like you're there. Like you see stuff that you remember. You got to realize that where you are, it isn't a place that you would be because it's not a land that anybody's really known because it's a planet that wasn't in any of the movies. Right. Because I wound up going for the opening day. Yeah, I wound up dealing with the you know the, the crazy lines and whatnot. But I mean, I thought it was done really well. I think the cast members, you know, and they they're interacting with you and actually like, you know acting as if you're a, a visitor, you're like a traveler, you're not on Earth. Like I, I thought they did a good job. I know the Harry Potter area definitely like really immersive and, and amazing. But one, I've never read any of the books and I've never seen any of the movies. So for me, I'm just like, oh look, I'm in creepy London. I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what's this beer that's not really beer that stuff was amazing that was another thing so the butter beer amazing the blue milk is gross <laughs> it was like nine dollars for gross did, milk slush i mean let, let's let's be honest here did we ever think that blue milk was going to be good i had to give them nine dollars to find out see funny enough i tried both and um i don't think it was that it was nine dollars was that the one with the alcohol in it because no that was the, like an extra six or something really I don't see. I we picked up both of them to try them. The green one, the green one was a little bit better, but both, both, you know, both of it was just kind of just weird. It was like I, I get it, and you, you know, the experience and whatnot. But yeah, I would definitely drink like three butter beers compared to any of the yeah. the milks, especially the especially the slushy one. That slushy uh, butter beer is ridiculous. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the best one. So while either of you were there, did you build the uh, the lightsaber or the droid? I did not. Yeah. I, 
I didn't either. It seemed more of like a little kid kind of deal. No, it's that. It's that. It's that. It's dude, not? I know. No, oh, no. I know. I know. Full on grown ups who did the lightsaber. I mean, it's amazing. And yeah. the lightsaber, like the lightsaber you get after that, you know, when it's built and everything like that, is incredible. And it's like, like when you activate it and everything, and it's really, it's it's pretty dope. But it is two hundred dollars. And you know, if you are like a collector and like you know you collect the replicas, you know, like the late nineties, there was a. Lucasfilm teamed up with I forget what what replica company, but they did the the handles for the lightsabers, and they did like Luke, Vader, and Obi Wan's, and those alone were like a hundred and like forty dollars. So so with this for like two hundred dollars, you're getting, you know, you're experiencing building it, picking the crystal, doing all that stuff, and then, you know, it it turns on, it turns off, it has the the motion sounds, all that stuff. So. If you are a collector and, you know, it, it's pretty cool. But, you know, and then the droid thing, the droid, I think that was like a hundred bucks. And I mean, it, it's awesome what you get for it. But at the same time, it's, you know, a remote control toy, which could be a hundred dollars. Because I know when I was a kid and I used to have like the RC cars and all that stuff, like the really good ones, mm-hmm. those things were like $150 alone. But, you know, you're racing them and whatnot. But, you know, the, these, uh, the droids that they you make, it's pretty cool looking. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I saw some, uh, you know, like some people that posted like, here's the parts and here's what it looks like as you're building it, you know, kind of thing. And it did look, it did look pretty cool. I don't know that I would personally do it um, unless I had like a little kid or something. But it's more, um, it's less the price of what it costs to do it. It's more like, well, by the time you go to the park and you pay to get in and you pay to eat, eat some food or whatever, and then now I'm going to pay a hundred dollars to make a droid. You know, it just adds up. And you're yeah. and, and you're carrying around all day. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw a ton of people with the lightsabers and the full-on like handle thing they have to hold across their chest. Yeah, yeah, they, they, have to, yeah, yeah. they have to put in that thing because they can't have people like fighting a lightsaber in the middle right. of the park. There, you just spend two hundred dollars and you get it taken away from you. You get kicked out of the park. <laughs> Junkyard was saying he hated about this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wanted. I was going to ask you a question. Uh, quick questions about. I've never been to Designer Con. What exactly is it in relation to, like, say, New York Comic Con, San Diego Comic Con, Five Points Festival? What exactly is it kind of comparable to? And um, so I've been going to Designer Con since 2011, and and like in 2011 timeframe, it was very similar to like Five Points. You know, mostly independent creators. A lot of times, mostly like designer toy artists. Um, some like poster print artists and then some like fine artists that kind of like dip their toes into art toys. Right. And, um, you know, it's kind of like a big party and then everybody's kind of selling. It was one, one small room in the Pasadena convention center. So it wasn't a huge thing. And then over the years, every year it's kind of grown a little bit, changed the, it went from one day to two days to now three days and it, it moved convention centers, um, from Pasadena to Anaheim. Now at this point, the size and space is probably not quite as big as New York Comic Con because they have the whole section with the the artist alley that's like isn't that down in like the basement now or something like they have a whole separate section where that's at. But it, it is a very large convention center now with a whole lot of a whole lot of booths and tables, very wide aisleways. You know, it feels very conventiony, but it's not quite Comic Con yet. I guess you would say because it's not quite as packed as comic-con now the last year they were at pasadena 
it felt very much like a comic con like you couldn't walk down aisles you couldn't uh, move but the the more space has kind of spread people out so i'd imagine they're having the same amount of turnout it's just not as compacted into each other so as far as what's there it's still very art driven so even when they had like pop culture stuff there last year for the jurassic park anniversary art show that they did so they had brought in some vehicles like from universal and whatnot and um, they had like this giant replica of the t-rex that you could see and everything uh, but it was still art focused right so they still have this 25th anniversary art show or whatever year it was i can't remember it was a you know art show with people that present things at the show with original pieces of artwork inspired by uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, some people are saying it's it's gone commercial, you know, they've got Universal in here, but it's still about the artwork. It's not about, it's about characters we love and then artists reinterpreting them and, you know, creating work inspired by that. So it's still different than Comic-Con, in my opinion, because that's like an officially licensed art show versus, say, somebody, you know, creating you know, their version of Wolverine and selling at their table. But as far as a show, it has more in common with Five Points, but it's way bigger. Five Points is still a, a walkable show. You can go around in it. You can kind of see most things in a day, a uh, day and a half, um, you know, and then have time to go back and revisit with people and talk and, you know, kind of do that. Um, at Decon, if you go and you're a spectator, um, it's going to take you a good portion of both days to see everything. Um and if now that they've had the preview night, it's probably going to take you a good portion of all three days um, to really look and see things. And if you see people you want to talk to or artists you want to meet with or, you know, those kind of things, it's definitely not a one day show anymore. Like it used to be. You used to be able to go kind of walk around one day and you could probably do the whole show and leave. And it's just not that anymore. So is there like, is there lectures and those kind of things like at the other places or? Yeah. So they, um, they started doing uh, panels a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, four years ago, something like that. So they have different um, people come in and, you know, they bring some of the artists up there, production companies to talk about what, what does it take to make your own toy? Um, how to you know make things in the business or, you know, how do you make connections or they had um, a podcast um, at one point that was hosting a, you know, like a live recording and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, they do, they do panels and such, but it's not necessarily like Kid Robot isn't showing you what they're making for the next 12 months. You know, it's, it's not panels like that where like brands come in and talk about the next wave of product or anything. It's more discussion-based panels. Not only, I'm only asking because I, I literally get X. You know, if I'm going to this every single year by like at least <laughs> a ton of people. And I'm like, I'm like, well, unfortunately, because of my job, I don't have the time off. And then everybody's like, but you got to get out there. And I'm like, what do I do when I get there? <laughs> as far as like an artist perspective, like somebody like you, basically everybody's there. Right. So there's tons of galleries, tons of artists, tons of production companies. Um, there's a lot of networking to be done, I guess you would say. But as far as, you know, you like obviously could get a table, but, you know, tables aren't. I mean, they're not super expensive, but they're also not like free either. And you got to travel out there and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be kind of an expensive trip if you get a table, I guess is what I'm saying. And then you got to sell a lot of stuff to make it worthwhile, right? So you're, so you're telling me don't do it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> I, it's not the worst idea to do it. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people go in there and I kind of caution people that are going to set up a table. 
it may not be a profitable venture, right? You know, just like there's a lot of people there, there's a lot of people buying, but there's also a lot of competition, right? So when you put three or 400 people that all sell products that are very much in the same market and sucking from the, you know, same people that are buying, right? And there's a chance unless you have something that stands out or they can't get, ex you know, anytime else or launches at this event, that your thing's going to get lost in the 600 other releases that are happening, right? You know, and I mean, five points is the same way, but on a smaller scale, right? I guess any show in a way is the same way, right? <laughs> like, Cause I know like down by you, Corey too, there's like a ton of like those conventions that happen every year too. Are the attendees people like industry people or is it like outsiders like looking at things? Is it like caught on like something like Comic-Con that people are going there and they know that, they'll be able to meet and pick up art from these people or product from these people. Is it that kind of following? I've never been to Decon either, but the local conventions that we do here in Florida are usually people have no idea. And mostly what sells are the blind boxes and it's mostly to kids. Mm. Um, I, I would say like maybe like 1% of the people come by and they're like, oh shit, Alex Pardee or oh yeah, I used to buy Dunnies when I lived in California, like stuff like that. Like we, it's very, very seldom, but the, the blind boxes do really well, so that's why we keep going back. I think Decon is, I would say it's kind of a mix, right? So there's the people that are the hardcore collectors, because I mean, like, for a hardcore collector, this is like Mecca, right? Like, everything is here in one spot, and I can meet everybody and do everything, right, in three days. So, like, those people are there, obviously, and they're usually there on preview night, and if you have something they're wanting, they come, like, immediately, and they come and get it, right? But then there, there are the people, like, every year we meet new people that are, you know, I've never been to anything like this. I've never seen this before. This stuff is so cool. You know, they pick up something. When it used to be in Pasadena, I think it was a little more accessible to that because people in Pasadena could easily get to the convention center. They could walk there and boom, they're right there. In Anaheim, it's a little different because it's right near Disney. Um, it's not as, to my opinion, accessible to walking traffic, right? So you kind of have to plan to go there, you know, whereas Pasadena, people could stumble into it. And the, the barrier to entry was a lot lower because it was like $10 right. for the entry. That's a little more expensive now because, you know, they're doing more. It's a bigger convention center. You get more benefit out of the ticket and everything i guess what i'm saying is it's you're still going to get those people that have never seen this stuff and they're going to you know maybe spend some money at your table but you have to have like a mix of product right so like ten dollar pens twenty five dollar t-shirts you know you can't just have a table of like here's 15 custom toys that are five hundred dollars each unless you have that market and you know those people are going to be there you're not going to sell that to the to the random person i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> generally generally Right. There may be one guy that comes in and buys something for $500 that's never seen anything like this before. But uh, generally, you want to want to have a mix of product in order to you know, target all types of collectors that come into DesignerCon. And I mean, that's really the same at, you know, same as what Corey's explaining, right? Blind boxes sell because they're a lower price point than say like a hundred dollar toy that's probably going to sell to somebody that knows exactly who that artist is, or at least is aware of designer toys. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I appreciate the little breakdown because, to be honest, whenever I ask people about it, nobody gives me, like, a straight answer. It's just, like, it literally comes down to, you got to do it. It's like, well, you haven't explained what the hell it is. Like, you know, it's like, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. I think someone that's an artist that's thinking about trying it out, a good way to do that might be to either, A, reach out to somebody that has a booth already and see if you could put something there on consignment. Maybe if you're looking to travel out, you could go and do a signing at that booth or anything like that. If it 
works out well for you, then maybe the next year you can either get a booth or split one with somebody, right? That, you know, maybe a, a brand or another artist wants to get a booth with you and you kind of like take a halfsies or something like that. And if then that works out and you're selling way like crazy and you want to keep making more product, then you just get a whole booth the year after that, you know, just kind of take it in stages, you know, make sure it's worthwhile, especially somebody like you that's on the East Coast and has to travel all the way to the West Coast, include travel money and hotels and, you know, driving, you probably have to get a rental car, you know, like there's a, <laughs> there's a whole lot of costs that you're going to build up. Um, so making sure that it's a worthwhile endeavor is always a good idea. Or you can just view it as a as a trip and you're going to write it off your taxes, you know. So <laughs> it could be that too. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I just hear, you know, just tell me not do it. That's, what, that's all I hear you saying. It's just don't do it, Chris. <laughs> just stay home. I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm telling you to do it, but realize that it's expensive. For all the people listening at home, the reason why I'm not at DesignerCon ever is because of Travis. Send hate mail to him. Not me anymore, right? Well, we're gonna split a booth next year, right? We're gonna we're gonna have a uh, a booth for the podcast, right? That's what. Yeah. It's like UVD toys, Urban Robot Cat, Strange Cat toys, Robots Will Kill. It's a collective. And then we're just gonna phone Chris in, right, on Skype. Yeah. Yep. That's how you'll attend. No, just get we just get a we'll get an iPad and do FaceTime and and tape it to a uh, one of those one of those cleaning robots they have at a yeah. stop and shop. Or like a Roomba. You're just on this little like Roomba scooting around. <laughs> I see you're splitting a booth with the bots and cake is who's cake. Is that the band? Yeah. The, yes. Yes. It's the band. Was it jackets? What's that song? So uh, cake is actually um, a management company. They do a lot of events and they manage artists and people's distribution and different, different items. So they actually work with uh, junkyard. They, they wanted to get a booth for designer con. So we just decided to get one all at the same time and get in the same location because we will be launching a specific colorway of junkyards uh, piece that we're producing for him. So it's like, Hey, let's just get it all together and we can make like a big, big thing about it. So that's the, the cake portion of our booth. Not not the band. That would that would have been pretty epic though. <laughs> like even though uh, I can't name a song, it would have been pretty epic to have a band um, that people knew <laughs> at our table. In a short skirt, long jacket. That's, that's, that's the only one I know. I can only think of that record co- cover. That's like the you know it's like the pig on it. I was thinking like the sepia tone one with the cake on it. I don't I don't know what that is. I just remember when I was a kid. You know those like um, Columbia House or. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like it would always be like advertised in the uh, little like CDs you could get and go <laughs> oh, for a penny. Yeah. So actually when I was a kid though, like my mom had did it like super long ago, like when she was, you know, like in, you know, in the eight seventies or eighties. Right. Um, so she was like grandfathered out of all the BS part of it. So I could literally get CDs for like, yeah, you know, I could get like 20 CDs for like 30 bucks. Was, I used to have a paper out and, we would go doing the papers and a friend like friends of mine would help me and we, we would get back to my house and all of a sudden they'd be like oh let's throw the cd on i'm like where the hell did you get that cd from I'm like oh it was in uh, one of the customers mailbox i go what <laughs> and he's like he's like yeah it was like the random house they'll send him a new one i'm like no that what i was like you can't get me fired from my paper out what the fuck it's a federal offense, right? To steal mail. So in this episode, Travis has got me to not do decon and to get arrested. <laughs> With these big shows like decon and when Five Points come around, I'm sure Comic-Con, do you think just everybody's trying to get all their stuff rushed out of the factories that they thought were going to get there in time? Um, I would say it's, prob- it's probably a mix, right? So like, I would imagine that there's a lot of people trying to rush stuff out. It's always good to have something, at least in small supply, that's brand new and exclusive to the event. But you're you're much better off to like plan it out to where you have 
arriving much earlier in the year and then you just have a colorway that's available at a show generally i'm kind of rushing to try to get um if i have a project that's in works i'm trying to get like samples so i can show i use decon in five points um a lot in a lot of ways as a form of advertising because i don't take like ads and things or you know like we're not a company that's gonna do well if we put an ad in like a magazine or something what i do is that i use this as a chance for a to advertise the brand get the name out there and then B, to use it as almost like a focus group because you're not really going to get a better assembly of people to look at products that you're creating in the scene than at those two shows for between Five Points and Decon. So if you can get your samples there and hear people's feedback on like, we like this, we don't like that, uh, we'd like to see you do this artist, we'd like to see this other artist, that's a good way to get kind of like instant feedback versus just online where people you know respond to a comment it's like oh that's great and then they never buy it or they don't provide you any kind of real information about things they like things they don't like and then i kind of make like it to be like kind of a little fun aspect of what we do as a you know because you get to meet with people and network and do all kinds of cool things that you can take back and then figure out how you're going to redo things for 2020 or 2021 whatever year the next year that you're making stuff for so are you are you trying to say that people say they want to buy something you make it and then they don't buy it that never happened if only people on that liked everything on the internet right bought everything that you made it would be great all, all those people that say make a print of this and then when you do the, the, <laughs> you, you just hear crickets yeah yeah, yeah. Like, cool sold too exactly yeah 48 left <laughs> to be able to talk to somebody and then they say something and then you're able to ask them a question and then they respond right there is you know that's very valuable <laughs> like as far as versus the internet where you somebody says something you try to contact them to hey what did you mean by this and then they crickets you never hear from them again you know uh, to me it's very valuable to get out on the you know kind of the man on the street right and talk to these people that are buying these things and are excited about these projects and kind of learning what people are interested in and kind of what people are that feel like they're missing from the uh, designer toy world. Um, because, you know, a lot of the stuff we make and Corey can tell you the same thing. It's all kind of a shot in the dark. You're like, I think this thing is cool. And then you put it out and you're like, does anybody else care? You know, like, and I'm sure I'm sure you go through the same thing, Chris, you know, when you're kind of making not necessarily maybe your artwork, but maybe some of the products that you make that go along with it. Right. Like the shirts and hats and pens and whatnot. It's like you make it. You're like, this is cool. And you're like, will anybody else think this is cool enough to buy it? <laughs> you know? Nope. Don't know what you're talking about. Everything sells. Everything's amazing. <laughs> and and I've never sat on a design <laughs> that I thought was the best design in the world. And then it sold too. No, never happened. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the result. But when you're like, you know, you spend months and months developing something, especially with toys, because it takes so long. Just joking around. But seriously, I, I have done shirts that I'm like, this shirt is amazing. And then it doesn't sell. And I just go, what the hell? And then I think of guys like you who do spend months working on a project and it's such a, just a crazy, it's a, not a shot in the dark, but it's, it's a leap of faith almost because it's, it, you put in so much work because production's gotta be a nightmare. Cause I mean, for example, like I don't really know anything about it. I know that it starts with like a, a sketch then turns into a model and all that stuff. I mean that's that's something actually I could I would like to pick your brain about too, Travis. I, I don't know. Do you go through? Because I've done one production. I'm in the middle of a few others. But do you go through like almost like mood swings with it? Like you're like this fucking toy is amazing, and then like a month goes by and you're like, should I make this? Is this is anyone a, is anybody gonna buy this? 
I don't necessarily ever like go back and say, oh, we shouldn't make this. But the whole time I'll be like, uh, nobody cares. This, uh, am I the only, am I the only, am I the only person that's like interested in this, this uh, particular thing? You know, like I, I kind of self doubt it sometimes. A lot of the projects we've done, it's like a gut feeling tells me that it's like, you know, if I like this, somebody else is going to like it. Is it going to sell like crazy? I don't know, but we're going to sell enough to get through it because I'm pretty picky when it comes to buying stuff. But then again, I also buy like weird stuff too. So I, I don't know, you know, like the stuff I like, I know it's going to work. And then I'm like sitting here like, yeah, but I like to buy weird stuff, you know, <laughs> like, and that's the only stuff I buy, you know? So I think I would struggle to develop like this, a generally a product that is runaway success, right? I think I would struggle to develop that only because that isn't necessarily the stuff I always buy. So I have trouble identifying the thing that's going to blow up, right? You know? I'd be horrible at picking probably a band that's going to go huge. You know? <laughs> like, Are you only going to make the stuff that you personally like and that you would personally buy? Um, no. And I would say that we haven't, uh, we've already made things that I wouldn't necessarily have probably been a collector of. What, what do you hate? What pieces do you hate? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not necessarily that I hate it. It just, some things don't match my aesthetic because I collect mostly weird kaiju action figures and like street art stuff. And, um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to put my heart into making it as the best that it can be for what it is. Right. And there's other people out there that love that aspect of those things. Right. You know, it's, it's not necessarily, and it also, you, you tend to learn more if you go outside your comfort zone. Right. Um, a great example of going outside the comfort zone is is the Ellie piece that we released. Um, but that project taught me a lot of stuff that I never would have probably ventured into. And I'm able to then take what I learned there and apply it to later projects to make them better. Because that project was seriously the most complex piece that um, we've ever made. Um, it was mostly injection molding. Um, it was also a ton of like there was like 14 paint apps on each colorway. So like just managing all those sprays and communicating with the factory on how you want that to be done and uh, making sure that it matches the original envision of the artist. It's a lot, right? Like it takes a lot of work to make sure that it comes out right. And I'm very, very happy with how the piece turned out. So that's not necessarily to say that I'm only going to make things that I like. And at the end of the day, I do like the piece. I guess I'm not saying I don't like the piece. It's just not necessarily something that I collect in my normal collection, right? I don't usually collect, uh, you know, princess type, you know, like girly type toys, I guess you would say. Like I'm going to get probably called out for saying girly type toys. That's all you collect. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Corey told me. That's all I'm going to say. But it's not necessarily, um, it's, it's good to challenge yourself, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's all, whether it's something that you love or it's something that you don't necessarily or initially like into as much, they're all shots in the dark, right? You don't know until it gets to market whether or not people are going to love it, hate it, think it's the best thing ever. You could have something that's going to sell out every five minutes. You know, you put it up, you could put a hundred of them up and they sell in two seconds. Or you could have something that's going to sell, you know, half the run, which is fine too. I mean, it's not the end of the world. Or you could have something you think is amazing and then you put it up and you sell three. You know, like it, it's all just kind of a shot in the dark. Um, but the key is, um, I think across the board and fans and collectors and other artists and everything we'll see is that if you put your heart into um, making it the best that you can make it, 
and uh, you put take the time and effort to put that quality in to create an amazing product, um, at the end of the day, you're building your resume, right? This is this is what I can do, and you know, making that project the best that it can be is going to keep more projects coming and it's going to give you the chance to keep making and doing the things you like. That was an awesome PSA. <laughs> Put your heart to it and you can do it. I'll say I, I, I'm with you too. Like um, the Astro Crash we made with, with Josh, I didn't know anything about Astro Boy. You know, we, we did the pin with Josh and I saw the response that people got when they saw the pin and just like how their eyes lit up and you know, I developed a, a pretty close friendship with Josh and I just believed in Josh so much and you know, it's, it's, it was mostly my friendship with him, and that's what kind of pushed me to make that toy. Like, I had zero interest in Astro Boy whatsoever. Now that I know the story about him, he's pretty interesting. But, yeah, I had no idea how well that toy was going to do. And now it's it's led us to, to start doing other stuff that's in the works now. I know this is probably pretty lame, but somewhere about uh, two years ago, as a as a 30-year-old man... <laughs> I uh, developed a, you know, I kind of challenged myself in my personal life to start reading, um, reading books, right? Like on a regular basis. I was never a reader, right? I probably, prior to being 30, probably read a handful of actual books, you know, through college and stuff. I just skimmed through high school the same way, you know? And um, I was like, no, I need to learn to enjoy this. And the books that I started to really kind of gravitate toward, towards were books of people that were like successful in whatever industry they were in music, you know, comedy, um, you know, entrepreneurship or whatever. And the, the going theme throughout those books was swing for the fences. And if you don't make it, it's not necessarily a failure. It's just that it didn't work. And then you just keep trying. Right. And that's kind of what I decided at some point was like, that's what I'm just going to keep doing. I'm going to keep just doing my best. And then eventually something maybe will turn out or if it doesn't, then, you know, just keep moving on. Yeah. But you definitely, uh, I would say in this in this industry, you can't have a bunch of back-to-back flops. It's, it's very true. You can't, you know, it's, it's a very costly industry and most of us aren't just bankrolled. You know, like here's, we're not all millionaires making, you know, these toys and it's very costly and, you know, it, but if you can keep yourself from, you know, if you can run the production game um, very cost-effectively, keep your overhead low, um, you can... You can have like, I guess you can't have two, two or three flops in a row, but you can't have like mediocre successes, right? You can't have like, I paid $20,000 and I sold three <laughs> multiple times over and over again. I would like to think that most people that are making toys um, from a, that are like a quote unquote company, right? Um, not necessarily like an independent artist. Um, I would hope that most of them are at least having, you have two or three people take a look at it, right? And tell you like people that you trust it's like hey do you think this is a good idea or you know like do like that little mini focus group right because if you don't you, know, you can get caught up in the oh my god this is the coolest thing ever it's the best thing i've ever seen in my life i'm gonna make it and you roll in you spend thousands of dollars and then six months later somebody looks at it and they're like why didn't you make this little piece like articulated or why you know you could have pulled this mold this other way and it wouldn't have a seam across the face or <laughs> like hopefully they're doing some of that because if you're going to make multiple toys, you gotta, you know, at least do your research and learn learn the mold making process and learn different aspects of toy making, um, so that you don't make huge costly mistakes over and over again. Yeah, and definitely get fresh eyes on it. Like I send you stuff all the time. And, you know, 
several, like a handful of other people. And I've gotten a lot of tips and advice on stuff that just totally went over my head. I mean, it's, especially somebody that's just jumping into it, you know, kind of starting out. It's very daunting, right? You've got, you've got this project, you've got this design as, as Chris was talking about, that's on a piece of paper. It's a vector art. Um, and you're like, man, I got to find somebody to sculpt this. And you find somebody to sculpt it and, you know, talented people either cost a lot of money or they, you know, they're working for a product or whatever. And that person's got to mesh with the art of the original artist, right? Or else it looks nothing like the original thing. And then you've got that. And then that thing's got to be able to be producible. And so if you're, if the person that you're working with isn't necessarily a toy maker or understands the molding process, they may make things that can't be um, molded correctly, or the factory may have a huge challenge trying to make that thing into a toy. Um, and then you work with a factory. If you work in a factory that's not necessarily, you know, up to stuff, you may get poor quality or poor, you know, um, seam lines or bad pulls, bad paint apps. You know, there's all the stuff that can go wrong. And then on top of that, you got to ship it into the country. You got to deal with the freight forwarders and deal with, um, you know, now the tariffs that are coming. And, you know, it's just there's all this stuff to deal with. And if you don't know any of that stuff, you can really make some costly mistakes. You know, the the very first toy we made, we made a, a somewhat costly mistake for an error um, that somebody like us can make is we had our figures shipped to a place. Uh, it was our warehouse that we were using. And um, we had to have additional ones shipped to us. Well, we didn't really know anything about freight shipping. So we just had it shipped to be a FedEx, right? You know, boom, yeah, just ship it over. Well, then the bill comes like after they've already been shipped and you're like, you're like, holy crap, like it's like $1,400. Like that costs more than it did to call to ship it over from China. Like what the heck, you know, like, and that was a, you know, a pretty costly mistake in a, in a, um, you know, in a project where we would, you know, we did it on Kickstarter and we planned for a certain amount of shipping and that was more than the shipping we'd planned for, you know, so it just, you know, we had to come out of pocket and then make it up on the back end, you know, and it worked out for us in that case because we had done a Kickstarter. But, you know, somebody that had already put in like $12,000 of their own money and they're like, oh, now I got to find another $1,500, you know, $1,400 or whatever. Yeah, that could be project game over, you know, for somebody. And especially if they then got the toy and they sold like 20 of them, you know, not, you know, they've got 300 of them sitting there and they only sold 20 of them, you know. Um, and another thing people don't think about either is um, storage. Specifically, if you make a very large toy, and you know, let's say that your case, um, for those that aren't listening, your, your toys come in a box, and in that there's a grouping of those toys that are put into a bigger box, which most people refer to as a case or a master case. Chris, you're listening, right? About Absolutely. big toys? You, you said about big toys, right? 100%. Okay. I, I, listen, like, this, this whole show is about shooting Chris down. I've learned it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've learned I've learned that I'm just going to sit back and take it. That's it. So go ahead. Tell me about storage. Yes. So, um, so if you make, um, let's say you make a four inch figure, right? You might get 10 of those in a master case. Time out real quick. Could you give an example of what a four inch figure would be? Is that like, what, what is like the average GI Joe figure size? What's that? So a G.I. Joe as in like the 80s G.I. Joes? Yeah, or like the, the American hero, the real American hero. Okay, so those are three and three quarter inch action figures. So they're a little under four inches tall. A good example of that would be like an inch taller than a Dunny, um, a G.I. Joe, uh, a little bit smaller than a He-Man. But you get a master case, you might get 10 four inch figures in a master case. You make a 
15 inch figure <laughs> and that may come as two in a master case or if you get up to like a 20 inch figure that might come one in a master case right so if you have to order 500 of those figures you have 500 boxes <laughs> right whereas if you order 500 four inch figures you only have 50 boxes right you know so the, the storage of those larger figures can you know take up a lot a lot of space uh, very quickly and unless you have a, a place to store them you're gonna have to pay for that and that's gonna be like a monthly bill or you're gonna take over a section of your house and you can no longer use it well you see see here's the thing somebody once told me that if you put your heart into it then you'll get it made <laughs> so if you want a 20 inch figure you won't care if you have to buy a house in order to store them in i i totally get behind that but it's things to think about because i mean at, at the end of the day it's all a costly endeavor right i mean it's just it's a lot of money to put out up front to not really have a great market forecast for designer toys, right? Like I've got this thing and it's going to, you know, I'm going to make it and we're going to sell a million of them. There's not a great test for that. Like, cause you could, you could even put out, you could even put out something that's been super popular and then suddenly it's not popular anymore. That can happen too. Well, I yeah. mean, it's, that's, that's one of the craziest things about it is that that time frame. because for example, like when we were talking to, um, junkyard in that one episode he mentioned that it was what three years it took for that one figure to get made now i know you mentioned your turnaround on like his figure was uh less than a year what is like a realistic time frame for something the standard timeline that i quote to folks is it's going to take at least a year to go from your sketch to you're holding the figure in your hand because there's there's aspects of the the process you don't want to rush and one of those is that that initial phase when it goes from 2D to 3D. You want to take the time to really make sure that that thing is the thing you want to make. And then on top of that, from an artist perspective, and then I'm also looking at it from a production standpoint. So I'm looking at it and saying, can I make this thing? And if I do, how's I, how am I going to make it? Can I get some articulation in there? Because you know that adds quote unquote value to the toy. Am I able to pull it in the mold? How many molds is this going to probably be roughly? Because each mold is additional money, right? You know, and there's all that stuff to think about that the artist is just like, no, it needs to look like my thing. And I'm like, well, how are we going to make that thing? That aspect of it that really has to be dialed in, um, in my opinion, and ready to go to the factory or else it's going to just cause delays in the factory process because you're going to be fighting with the factory to make sure everything's smooth and correct um, when they, they make the samples or the molds and all that stuff. And if you get to that point and then decide that something needs to change, I've made all the molds, you're going to have to retool that thing and start over a timeline schedule, B, money, right? Like it's going to cost you a bunch more money because they got to redo molds. So getting that sculpt correct and making sure it's producible is, is huge. So for the average person that might not know anything, i.e. me, when you say a pull on a, on a figure, what exactly does that mean? So when you, when you think of a pull, that, that term is used um, because when they produce the vinyl in the mold, they have to pull it out of the mold. So people say a pull, it has to be able to be pulled, right? So generally in thinking, when you're looking at something that needs to be molded, it has to be pulled in a certain direction, either up, down, sideways, or whatever. You have to be able to look at the figure and say, yes, this can be pulled upwards. And if not, then you might get into more costly molding where it's like, okay, now we have to add more pieces or this we need to make this injection molding now versus roto mold, which is 
more like a hollow figure versus a solid figure. You know, there's all this stuff that plays into it, but that's kind of the layman term for what you would be doing. So, but what, what do you mean by like a clean pull? Like, so think of like a bust is a great example, right? So that's like usually a, a lot of times that would be like a single pull. So it's like the upper body, right? It, it has like a natural shape that you can pull directly down to where nothing gets in the way of pulling, you know, like the body out of the, out of the mold. But, but you have an action figure where there's arms, right? You can't pull the figure down because the arms get in the way of the mold. So those arms now have to be a separate piece from the figure, right? So that's how figures break down. So articulation in a way is like this thing of, well, I had to do it because it's the mold, right? So I might as well make the arm move, right? You know, kind of thing. So a lot of times you, you can design something really cool and it has like all these like crazy points on it or something, you know, like these crazy edges and things that are too long and they can't be pulled. So each one of those has to be an individual piece, which then adds like, we'll say if it has like five of them, that's five more molds you got to pay for, right? For your MCA piece, like the tongue, that can't be vinyl, right? It has to be injection. Yeah, it'll have to be injection. It would tear if it was pulled from a vinyl mold, right? too soft yeah it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be able to be hollow so injection would be something that's like a solid piece yeah i think an action figure an action figure is they're almost all injection molded okay so something like hard plastic generally okay. is what you're thinking <laughs> but but like a he-man is is hollow but that's still injection yeah so those those pieces they have like the cutout pieces inside for the guts to work right so like the rubber bands that are in the waist and whatnot mm. um but those are those are injection molded pieces, yeah. So a a roto mold piece would be something like a dunny, right? The head and the body, the arms are injection. Oh, okay. Tiny pieces are generally a great example of something that's injection. So like it's not big enough to be hollow, essentially, is what would make an injection versus roto. So when you make the fingers on your robot, those mm -hmm. are going to have to be injection, right? I think this could be wire. Yeah, <laughs> would probably have to. They'd all break. So that's why I need like a 20 inch figure. So the finger's nice and safe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you have to do, right? If you, if you really don't want, so what comes along with injection molding, think of, think of He-Man, right? Um, is generally there's, there has to be a seam on it, right? On the side of the side of the injection mold, because injection mold is two pieces of metal stacked on top of each other and they blow the plastic into the mold. So it creates that little seam where the two molds meet together. So the only way to get rid of that on figures is to, make it big enough to be rotocast. I've learned so much today. Thank you. Yeah, we're giving away we're giving away all the trade secrets. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because it's like you you look at you look at certain things and you kinda can figure out how they're made. You know, even if even if, you know, you're a complete outsider to it. But there is definitely things that like I just like for example, what is Sufubi? So the the Japanese ones, the so right so Ruby. So that's that's a totally different type of vinyl than the vinyl you're talking about for like like a Donnie. That that's debatable. Oh really? It's like a an American kind of thing. Um, there's Chinese vinyl and Japanese vinyl. They both those people call it Safubi, but in the US we typically just call Safubi Japanese vinyl. The 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 vinyl that's made out of you know, the, the vinyl that's making a Donnie versus the vinyl that's making you know, like a Godzilla toy from Japan, or that's a bad example because they make most of that in China. Um, but you know, like the the small, um, you know, small independent Sufubi artists, the vinyl itself, it's just a different, um, 
it just has a different chemical base. So it is generally slightly softer, um, but it doesn't have to be. They can change the chemical base to make hard vinyl in, you know, in, in Japan as well. Um, but Safubi, the what people kind of like have put up on a pedestal is more of the process. And the major difference there is that a lot of the factories that make the Safubi that we buy from, you know, small um, independent artists is done by small independent factories. That's usually like one to two people working, maybe five people working in the factory. Um, so they're just more hand done, I guess you would say, than like a large scale production. You know, think think a Ferrari versus a you know a Ford, you know, kind of thing, just on a smaller scale and much cheaper. But it, the 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 love and care behind it is more the excitement behind it. I guess you would say is more tied to the fact that the quality control should be higher because it's you know there's they're not pumping as much through and there's still that like element of it being handmade because it's not like made by a machine, I guess you would say, which in China, the stuff isn't made by a machine either. So that, that portion of it's kind of like incorrect. I think that's a, a stigma that Chinese vinyl gets is people think it's just a machine, but they're pulling the hand, they're pulling it by hand the same way they do in Japan. Yep, exactly. I'm sorry. And that pulling, when you're saying that that's the same thing as you mentioned before about pulling, or is that different? Same, same thing. Same thing. Okay. There's somebody standing there with a pair of needle nose pliers and they're pulling it out of the. Oh, okay. So how many, these sound like stupid questions. I know. Um, how many molds would there be of, of say a figure then? Would you like four to six or something? Right. Yeah. I mean, it really just depends, right. How complex the figure is, but, um, like a, a star Wars action figure, right. This will be a great, you know, breakdown for people. The head would be a mold. The torso would be a mold. The two legs are a mold and the two arms are a mold. Oh, okay. So it's not that there's like multiple molds of each one. It's just... They'll they'll do multiple molds still. Yeah, they'll they'll do multiple molds. It really depends on like somebody like Star Wars probably has like tons of molds um, if they're making thousands of figures. Uh, If you're only going to make 500 figures, you know, they may not make multiple versions of your mold. Okay. So then, so for something like the Astro Boy, then is there one mold that they were working from and pulling when i say one mold i mean one complete set of it you know uh, no i i think it was six so that so way it's it's the, the process is a lot quicker than just doing one at a time so then do those molds then get destroyed after you're done with them or no they just store them um for however long and if i say we want to make some more then they just bust the mold back out i think you can correct me if i'm wrong travis I think at some point you have to remake the molds like once you start going nuts. Yeah, so metal molds hold up longer than like if you were casting resin at your you know your house or whatever. Um, but eventually you do reach a point where the mold will start to lose um, you know the transfer so the pulls start looking bad. Um, so you'd want to redo the molds at that point. But yeah, you can the factories generally will store them for a certain period of time. And as long as you come back within that period of time, then you can reuse the mold. Would a piece be worth more if they know that the mold is destroyed? Um, I feel like if you market it that way, it's like this is a one-time run and we're only going to make 500 of these ever, then you probably could, especially if there was a market you know, for the artist. Let's say the artist is huge. Like, let's, let's say your cause. And you uh, decide that you're going to put out a thing. And it's like, there's going to be 500 of this and that's it. And there's never going to be any more then the value of that thing is going to go crazy, right? But if you're um, you know, new guy on the street that decides I'm going to make a toy and I'm only going to make 500 of these ever and that's it, and you only have a market to sell 50 of them, then nobody's going to, then nobody's going to care, right? You just destroyed like $8,000 or something. Yeah, 
So, I mean, it, it, it really depends on what your, your market is, right? To whether that, that would make a difference or not. Gotcha. Because I always wondered if that, like, because, like, for example, like, um, you know, in fine art and stuff like that, like, if you do, like, a, an etching and then they, like, retire the plate, you know, it, it kind of makes it more of a desired piece, the prints from it. Hasn't really been a thing in the toys, but I, I could see, like, I don't know, like, the Mutant Vinyl Hardcore kind of guys doing something like that. Yeah, I'm going to destroy the molds or whatever. Yeah, and, I'm sorry, Mutant Vinyl, what, what now? Travis can probably explain better. Uh, Mutant Vinyl Hardcore is a soft vinyl um, Safubi um, producer here that's in the States. Um, He has been doing things since about 2009 or so, I think, 2008, something like that. Um, And he is probably, him and Paul Kaiju are probably the two, like, you know, the biggest brand, biggest people doing that in the United States. And um, his stuff is usually super limited numbers, mostly because it comes from Japan. And you can't necessarily get huge quantities at a time, um, so he does a lot of hand painted, uh, hand painted versions of them, either in releases in groups of like say twenty five or thirty, or he'll do one offs as well. Um, but his pieces tend to be very valuable, so once you get one, they tend to you know go up in value um, pretty pretty heavily. So if he did something like that, you probably could venture to guess that it would go way up in value because his pieces tend to have a lot of value to them. Yeah, because that's another question I always had was how many of certain things actually get made. Because I know, like, so, Corey, with the, the Astro Boy, what, what was, like, the production run on that? So Astro Crash, just so Tzika doesn't come after us. Oh, uh, I, I apologize. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say the exact number, but it was more it's, than 1,000, so, less than 2,000 total. Okay, and then that, and then within that is different colorways and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And that's normally that's normally what people do with no. it. <laughs> no, no. Since it was more of like a pop flip, you know, it. I feel like it has a longer shelf life than like an original character. So, for it to take, I don't know if it takes five years for us to sell out or more. That's fine because you know it doesn't go out of style. It's just like I, I think Ron English, when he makes one of his pop mashup toys, usually makes like a thousand pieces of each one. Mm, okay. But I think most production runs of a artist toy is around five hundred, and they usually make two to three colors, sometimes more. I would say that most most runs are between five hundred and a thousand, broken up over most a bunch of colorways, right? A good considerable number of colorways. Because and some people don't, uh, you know, pick up on that. But you know, if you add it up across, you know, this run that it released at Decon, or this one that had a store exclusive here, or this one that uh, we released wholesale to this, you know, if you add them all up, most toys probably come out to that five hundred to a thousand range, unless it's somebody huge, you know. Because that that's that's really at a point where if you can't justify making five hundred to a thousand of something then you probably need to rethink making a toy because the the costs at that point become they become possible to get a, a figure down in retail um, to where it's you know palatable for a collector you're not going to have a 150 dollar four inch figure you know people aren't going to necessarily jump on that unless you're this huge artist you know and so what's like the average price range then for a lot of these things because i mean i know i've seen pieces like you know I know it's different because like a, like a like that one quick show 
and it was an auction, you know, the pieces went for like 2500 Now, that's because they're a smaller amount of pieces made, right? And those were hand-painted, right, Corey? Do you know? I think they were hand-painted ones. Yeah, and I, I think it's also, it definitely depends on the artist. You know, Quix is the hottest artist right now, so that's why his are going for so much. But, yeah, I wouldn't say that's the typical person you want to base it off of. Well, and also I think um, you're mostly, if you're looking at an, you know, like a production toy that's being you know, produced in China or Japan or uh, being sold, um, that's being marketed as like a run of 50 or a run of 100, you know, run of 150 or something like that, you're probably going to be, depending on the size of the figure, looking at somewhere in the area of like 30 to 125 $30, something like that. Um, just depending on the size, you know, a four inch figure is obviously generally less than a, you know, 12 inch figure you know, kind of thing. Um, but if it's a hand done custom piece, it's obviously going to sell for more than that because usually people bake in the value of the figure uh, plus their you know time and labor that they put into the, to the figure as well. Um, and those things can range, you know, whatever the person thinks they're worth. Right. So they come up to, you know, $500 or a thousand dollars or whatever, you know, they kind of price it at, you know, and some people sell them and, you know, some people don't. It's the demographic you're trying to sell to also, you know, like, you know, we have four inch figures that are, you know, made for U.S. producers that are 50 bucks and some are 12 inch figures and they're $50. But then we have three and a half inch soft vinyl from independent artists in China that are $85, you know? It also comes down to is you know maybe that person that made the twelve inch figure that's a less price figure they made two thousand of them or something you know like they made a huge quantity that got the got the cost down um, that brought it down lower and then sometimes there's a bit of um, intrinsic value right so the the artist can command more because they have a following that supports them right um, so there's sometimes intrinsic value gets played into the the aspect of it as well or quote unquote hype value right <laughs> you're learning all kinds of stuff chris listen i can't wait to you know um get asked questions when i'm at decon so <laughs> at decon and people are asking me when my figure is coming out and i'm just explaining to them listen it's gonna be a 20 inch uh soft vinyl full injection mold limited edition <laughs> glow in the dark uh Swarovski crystal encoded robot and, and then you're destroying the mold at the end, right? 100%. Just and, making one. But I'm, and I'm actually going to do a, a, a performance piece of destroying the molds. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I destroyed the molds, guys, and I didn't, and then I bootleg them. That's not going to do that. I'm going to actually <laughs> actually do it in front of everyone, so it's, there's proof there. Didn't, I, I want to say somebody did it. Like, they, they did a Kickstarter or something, and they part of the the buy was they were going to destroy the mold. I want to say that was a thing. I, I just can't remember what, who it was who did it, but it was a thing. Somebody did this. <laughs> uh, just so you know, they stole it from me. That's yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's one of those things that, again, if you're if you're an artist listening to this, this thing about making a toy, um, it's it's awesome if you are able to do this on your own and go out and make something. Um, but it doesn't hurt to work with a you know, a company that's experienced making things, um, you know, they can help either guide you or ask quite, if you ask some questions, they might be able to say, no, I think you'd be careful about making that, you know, because that's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, or they can help you, you know, just get pricing and those kind of things. A lot of times, um, most of the people in the scene are fairly helpful, um, if you reach out to them. So, 
Uh, if you see somebody that you like what they're doing, maybe talk, try to talk to them, see, you know, and they might help you out or try to give you some guidance or whatever. Um, and that can help you along the way because it's not necessarily the easiest process to navigate. And there's a lot of pap paperwork and stuff you have to fill out with the, with the government and make sure that you get it all correctly into the country and all that kind of stuff as well. So you, you don't want to you know, get stuck at customs and it's sitting there for six months or a year or something crazy because you filled out paperwork incorrectly. Well, and you want to source credible places too. There's so many places on AliExpress and Alibaba and I, I must get like 10 emails a day about we're from so-and-so plush and toy factory. Let yeah, us make yeah, your exactly. toy. Or pen factories or hat factories. I get like, that's the new thing. I get this like hat factory thing like every day. I'm like, I've never like even tried to get anything textile ever made so why does this hat factory where did they find me <laughs> like wait wait a minute you mean those guys really aren't finding my work and they actually don't like it because <laughs> typically they start it with i love your work we would love to make your product <laughs> holy shit they've been lying <laughs> you, you'll even see like on um alibaba like bait and switch stuff like i've seen customs on there that say they're like production toys like like even this um, this uh, artist that we're working with right now is like my my toys be a bootlegs on Alibaba and I looked and I'm like that's like a custom resin you made like there's no way they're making that and it says you have to order like ten thousand <laughs> it's just a bait and switch they're just trying to get somebody to contact them and then they're gonna say oh we can make something like this yeah there's a lot of sketchy stuff out there on the old Alibaba and like because if if not the big thing you can run into is like if you don't work with credible people. You're sending thousands of dollars to a place that you've never been, never seen. You don't know if they have a factory or they can produce items or whatnot, right? It may be just somebody that's not really has a factory, right? Or it could be somebody that, um, you know, the factory's like struggling or whatever and they take your money and then they shut down, right? You know, I've heard of, I've heard of a lot of people get into situations like that where the factory just folds up, their molds are trapped, you know, like... They have to have somebody from China like go find these molds and like try to take them to another factory, or they just have to start over. You know. Yeah, I, I uh, went through a middleman on a project and ended up losing out on like eighteen hundred bucks. Jesus, it's gone. <laughs> so be wow. careful. Yep. So you're just sending a lot of money. You got to be careful. You know, whenever you're, <laughs> people say they're going to do things for you on the internet, that doesn't mean they're actually going to do them. <laughs> That sounds like a really bad dating experience. I don't want to. I don't know. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just uh, swipe swipe right on the old uh, factories. And... No. Oh, thank you very much for all the information. I appreciate it, guys. I mean, how many times a year do you think you get asked about? Do you want to make a toy? <laughs> um, from just people in general, or people trying to make it? Let's just go both. Whatever. No, oh, I mean uh, to be honest. You know, the problem is, is like years ago, I tried getting a made and everybody, this is, this has got to be, you know, say 15 years ago. And first off, it was, you know, right out the box, it was like 10 grand just to get a, like a sculpt made. What? <laughs> and, oh yeah. Yeah. Back then it was insane. Like the prices that, that people wanted because there was no companies that were doing it. There was no, there was no small businesses doing them it was all you either had to like go to like a gigantic factory that was making them because there's no 
these these people overseas and everything that weren't taking on tiny jobs, you know, because yep. 500 is a tiny job to them. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, so back then getting anything, even like getting in the door, it was like it was a ridiculous amount of money. So I just kind of like was like I, I just was like, you know, what I, I can't afford that. You know, I, I I but stupid me, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm like, ah, oh, I, I can't afford that, but I can surely afford stickers t-shirts this that next thing and then i look at my you know my printing bill for the end of the year and i'm like oh that was 15 grand hmm guess i could have made a toy <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know granted it's it's a different story because obviously you know i was i i'm i'm getting rid of i'm getting things quicker and getting rid of them faster than if i would have spent 10 grand and waited you know a year for a toy. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a big thing that um, you know somebody trying to make a toy they got to understand is the timeline, right? You're gonna you're gonna invest a lot of money, and it's gonna be a long time before you see anything any returns on it. Yeah, and I mean when it comes down to it, I mean, like I don't know if you ever want, if you wanted to you know talk about how that even works with like artists and stuff like that. I mean, like talking to talking to companies and you know, and first off, any company that's gonna produce the toy doesn't want to pay the artist. They want to pay them in product. They don't want to, you know, they, they'll, and, and for me, uh, to be honest, getting paid in product is, is stupid because one, I'm going to have to store the toys like you mentioned, or should I say figures? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to store the figures like mentioned. Two, I'm going to have to ship the figures. Three, I'm going to have to figure a way to market the figures. So getting paid in product never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Even like even like when it came like even to you know collaborating with a company and, and making t shirts for them or designing t shirts, you know, and they're like, Oh, we can give you, you know, twenty five shirts and I'm like, What am I do with twenty five shirts? You know, like, you, you have to sell you have to sell them first. I'm gonna sit on twenty five shirts until, you know, how many months? You know, like it it, it just never made sense to me. Yeah. You know, and you know, I Listen, I, I I can appreciate, you know, the people who do do it, and the hustle. But I, you know, come on, how many how many artists do you know end up sitting on product because they either lose the gusto to selling it, or they don't know how to market it, or they're competing with the person who made them. It's a, definitely can be a difficult situation, specifically if that product is the same thing that's being sold by the other people, like. Maybe if they gave you twenty five shirts and they were a, a different color, right? You might have, you might have a better shot, right? <laughs> like... Right, exactly. You know, it's like so. Like even now, when I do, like you know, um, you know, I was just approached by a gallery to do a t shirt. They wanted to do a t shirt of you know a design that I did that you know they loved, and they were like, oh, you know, we can either give you X amount for the design, or we can give you you know this shirt, this and next thing, and, and usually what I say is you know i just want to guarantee that only say 36 are going to get made you know and and then if you're going to make more then you have to reapproach me about paying me again for the design or paying me a percentage per shirt after you know the initial design payment because i mean it just it gets you know it, it just gets ridiculous <laughs> to be honest yeah and it becomes a, a lot to manage you know from a, from your perspective too because if you have like six projects going on and they're all like trying to you know pay you in product, then you end up with all this product, or they're trying to you know do it the other way, and you got to make sure that they keep 
they only made 36. They're not making 76 or 106, you know, and not telling you about it, selling it out the back door or whatever. It just becomes, it just becomes a lot, a lot to manage, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, for example, you know, I, I, I have a nine to five job, you know, so then for me to paint, then also try to sell, you know, chip. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot. And, uh, so what you're saying is you just want to check. <laughs> no, listen, I, I, I would love to be involved in, you know, the, the colorways and, and the exclusives and, and who gets this, who gets that. Like, I appreciate all that. I think that's like probably one of the most amazing parts of the whole, you know, uh, the scene, you know, the fact that, you know, if I, if I did the robot and, you know, you carry the, the skeleton version. Corey carries a, a chrome version. Uh, you know, Clutter carries this. I think that's amazing. I think that's a really cool aspect of it. And, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was the one selling all that stuff. Well, and it acts as a, you know, Corey's followers um, and my followers might be different people and Clutter's, you know, might be different people. And it gets your product out to, you know, people that maybe haven't seen it before. But it's still able accessible to your normal crowd of collectors as well, you know. Right. Yeah. So it's not that I just want to check because, from what I, so from <laughs> what I've learned is because if you have a heart and you you invest into this project, it will do better. Sweat equity. Sweat equity. People will believe in you. But no, I really do think that your character is a character that. Um, it's recognizable. It's been around for a long period of time. You've built up, um, you know, a following that that you know is behind the character. I think it's a character that still has um, a lot of potential to be transitioned into 3D. And I think a lot of people have been waiting on it. I mean, it's one of those things. So when you're ready, you're ready, right? It'll eventually, it'll happen or it won't, right? <laughs> yeah. And and when it does, you know, it'll be that, it'll be like that talk we had before. Yeah, I love this. And I get it made in 3Cell. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think done correctly, it could be a very very popular figure. Yeah, it's well, that's why it's got to be twenty inches tall and has to have <laughs> has, has full full articulation and you need, um, you need to make it like a, a Mattel uh, Shogun, like yeah. shoot, with an arm that shoots off of it and like oh hell's yeah, exactly, and the and the back wings that open up and they slide to the sides. <laughs> People are like I never knew your character had any of this, and you're like neither did I. Yeah. <laughs> The factory told me I could do it, so screw it. I'm doing it. And I, it's it is a tricky. I mean, it's it's to be honest, and you know, it's funny. Like over the years, and people you know do ask about making it and stuff like that, and it's it's hard to say yes to something that I've you know that robot something I've been drawing for over you know 20 years now. So it's like it, it sounds you know sentimental and stupid, but. <laughs> he is my baby, <laughs> you know, and, and, and to, to, to have it done wrong or go through a process of a year of, no, this isn't right. No, this isn't right. I, you know, I just want to, I don't know. I just want to get right the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it's important to, you know, always work with people that you trust, you know, don't, don't go out to Alibaba and just say, I'm going to make this toy <laughs> like, and find that person that's just, you know, on their, on the website, you know, just kind of saying they can make stuff and they have, you've never seen anything else they've done. You know? Yeah. Well, there's, there's this prince in Nigeria that's going to give me money. So once I, 
that'll that'll bankroll your figure. Exactly. I won't. <laughs> then it won't. Then it won't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get made made in pure gold. <laughs> Doesn't work, and then you just do it again. <laughs> like, yeah, but I I appreciate you know everything you guys have uh, one talked about in this episode and two just in general everything over the years of you guys uh, giving me advice on it. So we've been talking for a while, guys. So let's go ahead and uh, wrap this episode up. And uh, if you want to, Chris, go ahead and tell people where they can find you. Uh, you can find me at at Chris RWK. You can also check out at Robots Will Kill. Pretty much on social media. Corey. Uh, you can find me on all social media, Strange Cat Toys and StrangeCatToys.com. And uh, you can find me on all social media at UVD Toys, or you can check out UVDToys.com to check out all the products that we have online. And this has been the Urban Robot Cat Podcast, and this is the show about art and the people who make it. Mm-hmm.